0: I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson and dealmaking is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and dealmakers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a dealmaker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Uh, I'm very excited to have uh, our guest here uh, today. Someone who I've known for a fairly large part of my life. Some might say my whole life. My aunt who happens to be, you know what, a a year older than me? I think you were a year when you were... uh... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No more. So we have uh, Butcha Stein on the podcast today. Butcha is a uh, partner at EY Law LLP in the business uh, immigration uh, department. Butch has been there since two thousand. Prior to that, was a sole practitioner and studied uh, law at Green Spiegel. And I believe you had article, you article your article at
1: Green and Spiegel. Our uh, article at, at, at
0: the Green yeah. and Spiegel.
1: And I believe you got your
0: law degree from uh, Osgood. Yep, that's correct. So, welcome, Butch. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ilan. It's gonna be weird calling you Butch the whole time, uh, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we will do our best. So, It'd be um, weird calling you Ilan. I know it is strange. <laughs> So obviously by the, uh, the accent, people can, can tell that you weren't originally born here. No, I was not. Like me, I lost my accent, but we were born in South Africa, in, uh, in Durban, South Africa. Maybe just let's, let's take a step back, talk about your childhood. I mean, we, we heard in a previous episode the childhood perspective from my mother, who's quite a bit older than you. Mm-hmm. So I think yours may be substantially different to hers. It is. But take us back to the early days before... You immigrated to to Canada because I know that you were you were the youngest, obviously, of five uh, five daughters, and you came here at a fairly young age. Uh, but we'll get to that. But uh, you know, talk talk about the the South African roots.
1: Yeah. So I, you're right. I grew up in Durban and left when I was 17. And everybody may have heard your mom's podcast. And so there were five girls, but I was the youngest by a very long way. So my oldest sister was 18 when I was born. And the youngest was nine when I was born. So I was I was the mistake. My mother says I was a good mistake, but I was definitely a mistake. She thought she was going through menopause at the age of 40. So I wasn't expected. My father was also a lot older than my mother. So he was 53 when I was born. And generationally and the time and place that they were in, they were older parents, not just by age. But by their demeanor and what they did and what they said. Well, they were probably had. tired from the four girls before. <laughs> yes, that too. That too. <laughs> <laughs> but my father was born in a Stretel in Lithuania, right? So he really was old school in many ways. And so they were wonderful parents, very loving parents, but not the kinds of parents that maybe you are used to having that were very involved or, um, in your everyday sort of decision-making and life and things like that. So I really did have, my sisters were, to a large degree, were parent figures to me. They helped raise me. They taught me about life in many ways that my parents didn't, and they were my emotional support and my social support in a lot of ways as well. So that was sort of my early early childhood.
0: Having parents that were maybe a little bit less involved and a little bit older how does that play a role, if you look, you, know, look, you look at your life now, I mean, you're a leader in you know, the things that you do, you're a leader within the, within, within the family as well, you're a very strong-willed person, as I know very well.
1: No, I'm um, not. <laughs> sure, sure.
0: Um, how did that play a role, having to kind of maybe be a little older at a younger age?
1: I think I'm independent to a fault. I certainly, from a very young age, had to be self-sufficient. My, my also, I mean, a very critical part of my childhood was that my father died when I was 15, and my mother had married him when she was 18. And although she, again, a lovely, wonderful, warm and and loving mom, she had never had to support herself. My father didn't particularly like her to work outside the home. She raised five girls, and she wasn't financially independent. She didn't know how to do that. To her credit, she she learnt, and she then worked outside the home until into her 70s, well into her 70s. But but I really was, um, in many ways, I mothered her as opposed to her mothering me. So very, in, I, I became very independent, and I think how that impacted me later on or throughout my life is that I really prefer to be self-reliant than to rely on other people. So, so
0: when you say independent to a fault, why, why to the fault? Well, what do you mean by that?
1: I don't know. I think it would be nice, <laughs> nice to feel that. I think, I think sometimes that creates a lot of personal anxiety to feel that you are the one that is solely responsible. And it's not fair. I mean, I have a, a wonderful husband, so I, I know that he's very much contributes to our life together, but in certain aspects of our life, I think I'm, I'm very much like to feel like I'm in control. Control and for it. So that, I was about to I was say, to I was hoping you were going to get there. <laughs> you know, a,
0: lot, a lot of strong-willed kind of, you know, deal-makers, because, you know, I, I talk, you know, this is called a, a deal-maker's DNA you know, what you do is deal making as well. I mean, we're always, you know.
1: That's what I was doing this morning, Then last it, night before
0: I got on the call. Exactly. And, and I find that the really competent deal makers also, unfortunately, uh, usually come with like control issues where like they have to be in control. I know, for example, that you and I hate flying, right? I, I, and, and funny enough, I find that that is a common trend amongst high performing deal makers. And I think it's, it's, it's that lack of control that we have that we don't like. Uh, you know, and a plane is a, is a great example of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I'm a classic type A. I know that of myself and I'm old enough now to appreciate that. But definitely I like to be in control and that requires a lot of effort. I think so. When you say to a fault, I think that for those people who can handle feeling less in control, I think it it really is in some ways leads you to a, a bit more of an ease in your life <laughs> than I sometimes feel.
0: And do you do anything currently tangibly to try and balance that part of your life out and become more comfortable with less control?
1: I think I'm Look, I'm not that old, but I just turned 50. So I think that as I've got older, I have become, I feel my place, a comfort in my place in life and in my work so that I don't necessarily feel that I have to prove myself in every single aspect of what I do, which is sort of my modus operandi, right? I always try to overperform to make sure that I'm doing what I should be doing and doing it well. And I think I've become more comfortable. My peers are now more my age, right? (laughs) And That's part of it. And so I, I feel like I've earned my place and my space. And so I don't necessarily get as caught up in in some of the smaller things that would have concerned me in the past. That's part of it. Do I do anything tangible in terms of, you know, do I... I struggle with doing things for myself, just from a time and capacity perspective. I've got, I'm sort of in this unique position where I have a demanding career and I'm sort of advanced in my career to some degree, but I have a very young family because I started, I started late.
0: Yeah, I was, I was about to talk about your children. I mean, I think having children is a tangible way that you kind of have to let go of control because uh, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, you can't control every component of your child's demeanor in life.
1: I firmly believe that our children are given to us to challenge us. <laughs> you know, I love my kids, but the personalities they have challenge the very core of my personality, which is that desire for control. I mean, you know them well, and all three of them are very different in personality, and you're right, you, you cannot control that.
0: This is one thing I, I know I wanted to talk to you about, because I think that a lot of women struggle with this. You have a very high demanding career. Like you said, you have a young family. You started having children probably later than most. Uh, Maybe it's becoming a lot more common actually these days. And I remember so distinctly, and you probably don't even remember this, when you had your first child, Aiden, who's now 12 or 13?
1: 13. So I was 37 when I had my first.
0: Yeah. And we had a conversation and you said, you know, it's funny, you kept waiting for being ready to have children. And then you realize that there is no time to be ready to have children. You just kind of have to just jump in and do it. For women that do have these kind of high demanding careers and and are are constantly waiting for when the time is right, what kind of advice would you give them? Because I think that that was a great discussion that we had because you're right. I mean, when the hell are you ready?
1: Yeah. And I think that's really a symptom of my desire for control, right? I wanted things to be perfect before I made those those active choices because I knew it was something I wanted to be really good at. And so over the years when I've spoken to other women, I think especially people who are very, women who have demanding careers, they've, they've either made the choice to have kids young before their career really took off and sort of almost, you know, sort of get that part. not I wouldn't say done because you're never done being a parent, but get those, those hard years, those first few years sort of done under your belt before you're, you focus more on the career. And then there are others like me who wait until they've got to a certain level and then take the time. I didn't take much time, but you take some time to have a kid. And then unfortunately, there are those women who or not unfortunately, they they may make the active choice never to, who who don't have kids at all, right? For me, I say unfortunate because I love having my kids and I've been very happy to have children. So advice, I, I don't think there's perfect advice. I would say the only advice I would give is don't let your career aspirations interfere with your personal desires. Life is very short. If you do want to have children, not everybody does, but if you do, kids are i mean i'm prouder of my kids than i am of anything else i've done in my life and so that should be the choice if i had if i were to do it again i might still wait till i was 37 but i wouldn't have hesitated for the same reasons so
0: i want to take a step back and talk about you know 17 year old you i mean that is such an interesting age to move countries literally across the world you're transitioning from high school or the end of high school to university you're coming with no friends i mean talk to me about how difficult that was because i know that when we immigrated and i think it was a year before you guys did my parents were established they they lived already they had the two kids already you moved into an apartment with your mom alone and you were kind of by yourselves right i remember that distinctly and 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 you were i know that you worked all throughout the end of high school university put yourself through school just talk to me about how how difficult that was looking back because, or maybe it wasn't. I mean, to me, just conceptually, that would be extremely difficult. I mean, I didn't have have to do that, you know, at such a, what I would consider a vulnerable age.
1: I don't think I thought it was difficult at the time. Look, I had come through a much more difficult time before that. My father died at a time in my life when that was my biggest fear in life was that a parent would die. Like my entire childhood, I worried that my parents were too old and that they would die. And then he did. (laughs) And so that for me, you know, and when he died, it was a very difficult time. You know, we didn't, as your mom has said, we had no money. He literally left us with no money. Not that he left us, but we didn't have anything. And my mother had never worked. Those were very challenging times for sure. And so, and immigrating, I mean, my family had all left. My sisters who I'm always been incredibly close with had all left the country and my friends, it was the final year of high school. I knew my friends were going to be moving to universities and some of them, you know, coming from South Africa, a lot of people immigrate. And so, you know, some of them probably wouldn't remain in South Africa for their remainder of their life so i not i don't want to under i don't want to downplay the fact that it was difficult to leave everything i had known and to come to a country that i'd never even been to before i'd never seen canada before i immigrated and i remember arriving and and seeing toronto for the first time and thinking what you know what have we done it's <laughs> i didn't look particularly pretty to me at the time <laughs> well,
0: well, 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 when did you arrive was
1: it winter No, it was the middle of summer. I think it was June or July. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was very, you know, coming from Durban, which is a pretty small town with a beautiful beach. And, you know, it was sort of, we drove through these semi-industrial areas from the airport and I thought, oh my God, this is hideous, right? Now, I love Toronto now and I wouldn't live anywhere else, but I didn't think it was beautiful to start. And so that was challenging. I've always been the kind of person that had diverse friendships. I did grow up with a core group of friends, but I always had friends in different, different groups. You know, I had my friends that I went to school with. I had friends I did other things with. And so I've always been quite okay to ma- make friends. And so that to me, you know, I came to Canada and I did a, a year of high school. I did grade 13 in the days when there was a grade 13. And I went to a an art school. I didn't do arts, but it was a, an art school. And your mom dropped me off on the first day. And she told me afterwards that she thought, what have I done? Because all these kids are walking in and I had come from a very traditional schooling education where we wore uniforms and had detention prefects and all kinds of things. And I was dropped off at this, this art school, high school. <laughs> public high school, but it was a, it was a, a school that we had a fine arts program. So the, but I quickly adapted and I made some friends and, and then I took a year off and I worked and I traveled and I've always liked to, to challenge myself and, and do things like that. So I don't, I don't think, I think it's, I think those kinds of challenges made me who I am.
0: No, for sure. I mean, you know, I, I like your, your work ethic to put yourself through university as an example, coming to the country with nothing. I mean, that's, uh, that's a testament to that work ethic. So the question I have for you is, how much of that work ethic do you think is a learned behavior versus something that's just innately in your DNA? As you, as you know, I'm obsessed with this topic, called The Dealmaker's DNA for a reason. You've probably heard my views on, on nature versus nurture, but would love to hear yours.
1: So I think it's a combination. And I don't know the percentage, but I think it's a combination. I think before I had my own children, I would have said that it's more nurture than nature. But my kids have taught me that they have, I have three children, very distinct personalities, all very, very different. And their personalities came out at a very young age. And so for sure. And then I look at my friends and I even look at my own family, at my sisters, and we all grew up with the same parents maybe different times and places and space in, you know, in our growth and, and years when we were developing, but very different people, very different people. And so I do firmly believe that, that a lot of it is, is innate and is nature for sure. But you spoke just now about my challenges in my life and how that's impacted me. I've actually always seen myself as very fortunate. I know that might sound strange to some people who've been more fortunate in some ways than I have. But i look around and there, a lot of people didn't have what I had, you know, and and I really do think that having people who believe in you, having people who can, even though I paid my way through university, you know, having the ability to do that was fortunate. There are some people who who don't have anything and don't have the support of people around them or the expectation that they will succeed. And to me, that is a, a nurture thing. And I think that's hugely impactful on your ability to succeed in whatever you choose to do. But don't you
0: think that obstacles are also fortunate in a way? I mean, I know some people that come from incredibly wealthy families that have achieved nothing because they haven't been faced with any obstacles. And I think that in a way that we talk about the negative as of like, you know, having no opportunity and no one expects. At the same token, it's like coming from too much is in a way detrimental if you want to create something for yourself and become your own person. So I think that there is this balance that's required between Feeling fortunate and having people that believe in you, but also having obstacles in the way that you have to overcome.
1: I agree, 100%. I think it makes you stronger. I think it makes you self-reflective. I think it allows you to deal with other challenges which will come up over time. You know, I think I think you're a good example of that. I don't. I think you had a objectively privileged life. You had personal challenges which then you had to overcome to make you stronger and make you who you are. Right. I look at my son who has a medical condition and my conversation with him always is that I'm so proud of how he deals with that because it makes him who he is. And hundred percent, right? It's, there's, there are positives. I think you have to be grateful. Even with the adversity, you have to be grateful for what it gives you to be able to develop you, right? For the rest of your life.
0: Let's go back You're, you're in university. You apply to law school. Why law? Like what was it about that career choice that, 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 that resonated with you?
1: First of all, talking about nurture, it was, if you look at at the five of us, five sisters, every single one of us had a higher education and has a career, right? Had a career. So that was expectation. So there was never, you know, why did I go to law school? Why did I go to university? It was just a given that I would.
0: Yeah, I I talk about that as well. I say, like, for me, the choice of going to university was the same as going to kindergarten. Like, it was never perceived as a choice to me
1: hundred percent. And part of that is that neither of my parents had it. My mother didn't finish high school. My father didn't finish university. And I think part of it is cultural, just the value placed on education. So first of all, there was always an expectation. And for me, I say it wasn't just an expectation that I would go to university. It was an expectation that I would be a professional and qualify with something that gave me a, an occupation, right? Not an undergraduate degree, but something more. And so I knew I was going to do that.
0: Yeah. And like you said, like, we were like, like all five sisters. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we have, you know, I can round them off. Everybody has a career, <laughs> but after that point, so I have always been, and maybe it's partly growing up in South Africa, but I've always had a, a really, a real interest in culture and people. Oh, I thought you were going to say arguing. Yeah, 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 (laughs) that's (laughs) it. So I did my undergrad in cultural anthropology. I would have done archaeology if York had offered it. And and by the way, I, I chose to go to York University for six years because they gave me a scholarship. And that's, you know, U of T gave me a scholarship too, but York gave me a bigger scholarship. And that made my choice. So talk about nurture versus nature. Like my choices, some of my choices were made very practically in life, right? And then in my final year of, of my undergrad, I had no great desire. Most A lot of people I went to law school with, you know, their father was a lawyer, generally not the mother, but the father was a lawyer, or they had grown up being told they would either be a doctor or a lawyer. I had no expectation of being a lawyer. I had no desire to be a lawyer. But I did some studies around uh, refugee work in, in my undergrad, and I decided that I, I needed to do something practical, again, that sort of type A personality. I, I needed to know that whatever I was going to end up doing would would be practical and, and give me a livelihood and whatever. And so I thought, well, let's use that. Let's go to law school and become a refugee lawyer. And that's what I did.
0: So you did something unique after your articling, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I am, is you did something that most people don't do. You went out on your own at a very young age. Why did you make that decision? How important was that in your career progression, because I know that you became a partner very young. And I think I would have to think that being able to prove that you can go out on your own and develop your own business was a a big part of that.
1: Yeah, so a couple of things. I heard one of your other guests talk about luck. And I think that there's some truth to that. I think some things in life are just fortuitous. So I article that in those days, one of the biggest boutique immigration firms in the country and I enjoyed it. And that year I, I actually thought that I might be hired back and that year they didn't hire back. And so I wasn't hired back. They made and a at mistake. the time I was, no, I was mortified, right? It was, you know, like I had worked so hard, I had done so well, it was like a real blow to the ego. Best thing that ever happened to me. And no disrespect to Green and Spiegel, great law firm. <laughs> but the best thing that ever happened to me because what it did was it set my career path in a different direction. And I had my closest friend, who's still my closest friend to this day, Giselle, she had gone into law school knowing that she would go out on her own and open up her own practice. And so when that happened, we decided to do it together. So we didn't didn't have a partnership, but we decided to open our own individual practices together in the same space. And we did that. And I did that for a a few years. And then I was doing a mix of sort of refugee work and, and other immigration work and frankly decided that I needed a change and it was at the cusp again another fortuitous thing in my career it was at the at the cusp of when corporate immigration law was really taking off in Canada and I met with the people who I thought were going to be the leaders in that field and I made a good call I made a good decision they were and when I when I interviewed just just one more point when I interviewed with them I remember at the time my soon-to-be boss said to me the best thing on your resume is that you put yourself through law school and your waitress for five years. <laughs> he wasn't as interested, not that he wasn't as interested, but he he saw the value in that.
0: I'll talk about waitressing for, for, for a second here. You know, I think that sometimes the biggest lessons you can learn in life or some are from those jobs that you look back and say, God, I'm glad I don't do that anymore. But I remember working as a stock boy at Shoppers Drug Mart, working as a laborer on a construction site. Those were incredibly transformative roles for me in my life that helped shape kind of the future version of me what did you take from from you know waitressing because i know you did that for many years besides your husband
1: yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 tons from waitressing uh multitasking you have to multitask in order to to serve 10 tables at a time and deal with the kitchen and blah 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 customer service because people in restaurants can be nasty, (laughs) right? It's a really tough job from the perspective of customer service. And so you really have to learn how to interact well with people and be calm and calming to them. And then just really hard, hard work, right? It's incredibly hard job. It's they short shifts, but they are tough shifts. And sometimes they're late at night and you're dealing with a million bosses at the same time. You've got to a kitchen screaming at you, a bar screaming at you, a manager screaming at you and your tables, right? So very fast paced depending on how you work. So I took a, I took a lot from it. And of course the obvious, which is you know earning earning my own income and knowing how to use that to put myself through school and support myself, et cetera.
0: So you said you wanted a, a change. You were working on refugee and some corporate, you moved to a more corporate immigration practice now when you started in 2000 there were very few lawyers in that firm if correct me if i'm wrong i mean you've seen a an incredible amount of growth within your business practice uh, under the ui banner what was it that you know made you think that corporate immigration work was going to be kind of a a good thing to to get into and what is it about it that interests you
1: so at the time i looked at the u.s market Right the u s. entered sort of u s. immigration, and the u s. government was looking for economic immigrants for a lot a lot longer than than Canada has been. a much bigger market, and they saw the value, and they knew that they needed immigrants to come in and help build the economy and maintain the economy. Despite what you read in the newspaper, that's that's the honest truth, right? Canada was doing the similar shift. so we were uh, we've got a long history, humanitarian history around immigration and refugees, so bringing in people, allowing people to come in to for family reunification, like I did, right, to live with their their family, allowing people to come in as refugees who are being persecuted in other countries. And I've always been and continue to be a very strong advocate that that is our global responsibility as a country to do that. At the same time, we have a declining population. Our birth rate is, you know, uh, we, we demographically will not support your old age, unless we have immigrants coming in to grow our economy and contribute to the economy. And so I'm a very strong advocate for economic immigration as well. And I started to see that the government was seeing that as well. The nature of their policy and their programs was changing to support that more. Companies were seeing the advantages of bringing in people to work in Canada. And at the same time, the world economy was globalizing. Now, COVID may change some of that.
0: I was about to Uh, ask you about that, about this deglobalization that's happening.
1: Yeah, 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 definitely. COVID will have an impact for sure. However, I've always been a really firm believer that companies and people will go where they need to go, regardless of what what governments say. It might be more challenging, it might be more difficult, and for sure for my clients, it's becoming a lot more challenging to move people around the world. But if they have a market they need to be in, they will find a way or a close alternative.
0: Let's talk about this deglobalization. It's something that I've been fascinated with. I mean, you're seeing this, I mean, spearheaded by the U.S., obviously, and that was even prior to COVID, was this us you know, versus them mentality that's kind of propagating around the world. I mean, you saw Brexit as another example of that us versus them, this tribalism type of mentality, which I think is super dangerous. I think that the progression of humanity in large part is due to the globalization of the world. And I worry about... This trend towards deglobalization. I mean, you're on the you're on the front lines in a lot of ways, and you're seeing it firsthand. What do you think is going to happen?
1: So, as you said, I mean, this this predates COVID. There's a sense of nationalism. I feel I call it tribalism has, nationalism. Yeah, secret, yeah, yeah, yeah. That has definitely taken, I think, a greater hold in our world politics and econo- and economy over the last five years or so. You're right. I mean, the UK, even pre-Brexit, Brexit, right, politically has become more conservative. The US, you know, these are big global players. We're seeing it in lots of different places in the world. Canada's I always, I, I, I'm proud of the fact that I think Canada actually has not. And I think that's going to hold us in good stead as we go forward. But I do think that that on a very practical level, COVID has, has had a huge impact. I mean, a very large part of what I do is to help people move around for temporary purposes, just business travelers getting on a plane. And business travel is completely stopped. Borders are closed. People are afraid to get on planes. All good reasons. Right. So I think that's it. But I think that's a temporary stoppage. I think, yes, there will be a certain amount of people that learn to work remotely. Um, I think, yes, there will be a certain amount of companies that look to look at their supply chain in a different way and bring some of that closer to home. There will also be companies that are looking at possibly not using other markets as for resourcing. So, you know, there's there's historically in the last number of years, there's been a big reliance on other countries like like India or China, or whatever, for outsourcing global talent. Um, And that's something that governments have been resisting for years. It's definitely part of the immigration rhetoric in the United States, where the government, it's part of the whole nationalism um, trend, which is, know we we need to keep american jobs safe right but i think that COVID has certainly made companies a bit more hesitant around those aspects because you need to be able to rely on your talent and you need to be able to rely on on having access to markets having said that the other side of that is what is what i said which is i think that we're too far down a path of us relying on being global to completely retract that's number one that's my personal opinion number two companies will go with talent sets. So if you've got an extremely talented person or resource in another country, you will either find a way to bring them in or accommodate hiring them for the benefit of your business. So a big part of what we're talking about with clients right now are virtual assignments.
0: I was about to ask you about how, how that's changing because everyone's kind of woken up to the fact that a lot more can be done virtually than we ever thought possible.
1: Correct. So, you know, you might not need your next CEO to physically actually come into the country. <laughs> you know, and CEO is a bit of an extreme example. But, you know, whoever that key talent is, you might be able to accommodate that remotely. And in fact, even in a place where maybe you don't have a corporate structure. So maybe where you don't have an operating business. So these are these are the discussions we're having right now with clients. And that's that's having a big impact on everything from culture and how they see themselves as an organization and how they work as an organization and interact down to, you know, know, the implications from a tax perspective, an immigration perspective, a PE perspective, all of those things are impacted when you start to look at some of those different ways of operating.
0: Very interesting. I mean, in in a way, you you guys are on that spearhead as it relates to this, you know, the changing global environment, because all you're dealing with is kind of cross-border movement of people. I mean, that in a lot of ways is gonna be where you see what's most likely going to look like the new normal. So I think that, uh, you know, hearing that people in those bigger companies are already talking about virtual assignments is very interesting. I, and I do agree, I think that's gonna open up a whole new world of need for, for tax as a good example. I mean, I could just think about all the tax implications that come with that, but uh, very interesting.
1: And at the same time, you have governments that are more hungry for tax dollars than ever right with the spend on COVID, i mean just look at canada right there's there's a huge spend on COVID, and so we're going to be paying for that and so they're going to be looking for opportunities to get tax dollars in another way this is a good way to do it and then and then of course you have on the personal side i mean i was on a call with a in, somebody just yesterday from the united states and with some of these changes in government etc you're going to have people looking to leave for personal reasons, not just corporate movement.
0: So, shift, shifting gears, you've been a leader and a partner for a very long time. Well, not I don't want to age it too much, but you've aged yourself already. What I mean is, you started super young. What is it about leadership that you've learned? I mean, obviously, I think leadership is one of those skill sets that you can be born with some degree of of understanding of how to be empathetic and and having higher or lower EQ but it is a skill set that you can develop over years. What is it about leadership that kind of, you know, if you were to give people advice that are starting their careers and want to become good leaders, what should they be focusing on?
1: Listen more than you talk. I think observe and listen. Choose your opportunities carefully. What I mean by that is be very thoughtful about your contribution. And I'm not saying be super strategic because you've got to be authentic and it's got to feel right to you. But a good example, I think, is is just thinking about what you're going to say and the ideas you're bringing forward and do that very effectively. So that would be my first piece of advice. I've heard some of your other guests talk about mentors and sponsors. And I think those are, there's not much more I can say on that. I think that's absolutely, you know, look for people that you can learn from who are, look for people who are going to help you grow your career and invest in you. I think the one thing I learned fairly early on, and it was really due to as one of my key sponsors actively coming to me and saying, I want to sponsor you. I didn't really think about the fact that I needed a sponsor. I didn't think, you know, and, and, I, and I do think, and maybe I'm going to sound, I don't know, old sexist, but I do think women generally, especially women maybe in my generation, weren't as proactive and strategic with their career aspirations. You know, ask for what you want. I had to be taught that I had to ask. But I wanted to be a partner. It, it's not something I would have asked for.
0: Jordan Peterson talks about the, the trait of agreeableness and that women are, are are historically more agreeable. And that's exactly what you're talking about, is men are just more bold in their ask and, and women haven't historically been.
1: Would you describe me as agreeable? No, that's the reason you'd be a partner. since. You're <laughs> <agreeable>. <laughs> uh, but even so... I think I, I am in, in the context of my career, and especially in the earlier part of my career, I was very agreeable. I didn't ask for things like that. I just certainly wouldn't have challenged my compensation very much. I wouldn't have challenged my promotions. I, I felt that I, though in those days, I felt I worked hard and I deserved them and people would recognize that without having to ask.
0: But, but do you realize now that you have to be, you have to be more of an advocate for yourself? Like, would you recommend people listening this to this be a little more aggressive in their ask?
1: Yes, within reason. Right, because it can also make you look really bad if you're aggressive beyond what you should be. But absolutely, there's no harm. And, and also just to, to ask people for support actively.
0: You mentioned the word authentic, authenticity, right? You have to be authentic. I think a lot of people struggle with the balance between authenticity and playing the political game, right? I mean, there's always a political game or strategic game that needs to be played to progress yourself in a career path by being strategic, but you also want to be authentic. So how, how do you balance those two things? Because in a way they could work cohesively, but they could work against each other at times.
1: I think I've been, again, fortuitous, I think it's, I've been really lucky and fortunate that my immediate partners and peers that I've worked with, I've not ever felt that I've had to be strategic with them, if that makes sense. We've got a, and it's, we've got a really good close partnerships. I'm a partner at EY Law, but I'm also a partner at Ernst & Young at EY. And so for the smaller group of my immediate partners, I I have never felt the need to be strategic with them for the betterment of my own career. And so I've always really felt I can just be authentic and honest and that I've got the support and trust. But I do see that in the broader context of a much bigger organization, and I'm part of a much bigger organization, you do have to balance that. And I think you can. I think you can be you just need to know when not to say right
0: <laughs> but so so but you you've had the opportunity of viewing younger people within your organization or more junior people within your organization over the last 20 years and you've seen some move up quickly some fail horribly some stay in between are there some common trends that you notice you're like this is the move like why can't people see this right like and this is not the move why would you do this i mean are there are there some common tra- uh, you know trends
1: yeah the, the hardest one i think to be able to articulate and to help people understand is the match or mismatch between expectation and desire. What I find often is there are a lot of people who who believe and expect that they should be progressing at a certain rate in their career, but they really, and that's their desire, but they're not ready. They're just not ready. And so, and I find that people, I think with that fast move pace that we're in world we're in right now that sometimes is challenging, right? Because there's an expectation that things will move quickly, but you got to be able to be ready for that and progress at the right pace for yourself. So I think that that's, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I see that I would say as a, I mean, to to, to
0: me, what, what, like, as you were talking, I'm thinking self-awareness. It's like being honest with yourself and knowing, you know, how quickly you should be progressing and whether your desires and expectations are matched. A lot of people just like, I find it's, it's the trait in humans that, I'm most disappointed by the lack of development, honestly. When I look around, it's like I cannot believe how unself aware some people are. And I think it's just not being able to look yourself in the mirror and have an honest conversation. It's very, you know, your ego is a hell of a thing. It's, It's really good at tricking you and protecting you into thinking that you're this wonderful person and that everything you're doing is right. And if things happen negatively, it's always someone else's fault. But I find that the people that have progressed best, in our society at least, They've had really honest conversations with themselves, and they could—they're the, always the ones that can tell you all the things they're not good at, and they—they're you know, always—they always downplay their accomplishments. It's incredible to me that the people who have the lowest egos at times are the ones that are are the most self-aware and and move up quicker. I mean, that's not always the case. There are exceptions to the rule, but but I definitely notice that as a trend, and I'm wondering if you notice that.
1: Yeah, no, I would I would agree wholeheartedly with that, and I think that EQ is something that you know there's been a real shift. And especially in the corporate mindset. Like I can tell you in the last five years or so, there's been such a focus on EQ because there's a recognition and, and a knowledge that, yes, being self-aware is a tremendous leadership quality. It helps you in leading with other people and it helps you with your emotional intelligence and understanding people that work with you and how to, how to bring them up along with you as well. So absolutely, I, I would agree with you 100%. I think that Being self-aware, is not it's challenging for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I mean, putting yourself in front of a mirror and, and looking for the things that you don't like and you want to change, that's a tough exercise that is uncomfortable until you go through it enough times. People call me this natural, outgoing public speaker. I can tell you the first times that I did it at school, I was like the shyest kid ever. It's like with enough repetition, you get comfortable in uncomfortable situations. The first time you lift weights, the next day it hurts like fucking hell. And then over you know, a long period of time, that starts to get normal. So I think, it's, uh, I think it's really important that people put themselves in uncomfortable situations at times. It's not, not healthy to always be comfortable.
1: My first mentor, when I worked as a lawyer, said to me, the day that you become comfortable walking into a courtroom is the day you should stop walking into a courtroom. You need to have that level of anxiety. And, and honestly, I, even, even now, as I get more comfortable in my career, I always have anxiety about how I'm gonna perform whether it's standing up in front of a group of clients or standing up in front of my staff, I'm always aware, I always over-prepare, I'm always conscious of what I'm saying and what I'm doing. And you're right, people looking in from the outside see me as confident and they see me as able to stand up in front of anybody and talk, but it, it takes effort.
0: So, Bucky, before I let you go, you know, for those individuals listening who would like to get a hold of you, I'm sure there's a lot of companies, especially now that are dealing with global talents, that are dealing with issues around uh, the movement of people, how, how can they get a hold of you? What's the best methodology?
1: Can you look me up? <laughs> Batia Stein, EY website, LinkedIn, eylaw.com, I think, or .ca. I should know that. <laughs> but uh, my, name is, my name is unusual enough that uh, you probably won't uh, find many of us out there. That is, that is
0: probably true. I've never come across another Bunch of Stunt, so you're right. Well, Butcha, thank, thank you so much for, for joining me. Uh, that was that was fun. Hopefully you forgot that we were even being recorded at a certain point in time in this conversation, and uh, uh, I will see you later.
1: All right. Thanks, Len.
0: That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.